0: Welcome to My Life, Chesedah Applied, episode 235. We are in the beginning of the month of Kislev, entering the week and parsha of Vayetze. And next Shabbos will also be Tes Kislev. Tes Kislev is the birthday and the Yem Halula of the Mitla Rebbe, both on the same day. So, as is our custom, we will begin with the timely relevance, to live with the times, as the Alter Rebbe said, which means with the Pasha of the time, but it also can include, of course, timely events. And then we will go into the questions and follow-ups. And now again, I will say, in your honor and your great questions, this will be a very interesting show and program, some very provocative questions, controversial ones. But as is our approach in uh, My Life Chassidus Applied, demonstrating how Chassidus and Teirah addresses every issue, has something to say about everything, and give good clarity and direction. Sometimes we find it explicit, sometimes it's alluded to, but we definitely have the methodology. The methodology given to us over 90 generations of Teirah and seven nine generations, seven generations of Chassidus seven generations of Chassidus Chabad, so we have a rich collection, a rich resource called Teirah and Chassidus to turn to HaFarba, HaFarba, the Kulaba, turn it and turn it, and you'll find in it everything we need for direction and guidance in life. And that is the premise of this program. So if you're here for the first time, or you're listening to this for a long period of time, or just a newcomer, just a few weeks or a few months, it's always good to refresh the mission and the purpose of why we're doing this. In the times in which we live with so much confusion and so much distortion, it's critical to go back to the sources, grounded and preserve the integrity of the way it was always meant to be, and above all, its relevance to our personal, psychological, emotional, collective lives. So with that, let us begin, being parashavayetzeh. And by Kislev. So Vayetze has many themes. We obviously cannot cover them all. I'll touch upon one of them, and also rely on cross referencing to previous years when we spoke about this theme as well. So Vayetze Yaakov Me Be'er Shava vayelacharan. That's how the, the Torah begins this week's chapter. That Yaakov left Be'er Shava, the home of his parents, the Fountain of Seven is where Yitzchak and Rivka lived in Eretz Yisrael, and he set out on his way to Choron. Choron is the hometown of where Abraham originally came from, where Yitzchak was born, and ultimately where, well, where Yitzchak was born, not necessarily, I should correct myself, but as the home of where Rivka lived, and her parents, P'suel and uh, and Lovon, and this is where Yaakov was sent in the last week's chapter by his mother and by his father to go find a bride, as well as to escape from Esau's wrath. So that's how the book begins. And it continues with some of the classic stories that everyone's familiar with. How Yaakov comes to this place, and he lies down to rest, and he has the dream, the dream of the Sulam, the ladder, with angels ascending and descending. And God comes to him and tells him, I will be with you, don't be afraid. And I will bless you, you will build a family. And you will spread, your family and offspring will spread. North, east, and west. North and south, all over the world. And many other verses like this that give us strength till this day in our individual and collective journey. And the journey continues. Uh, Jacob does arrive to the, the land of Haran, and that's where he meets Ravka, uh, not Ravka, Rachel, first, and then ends up marrying Leah and Rachel due to the deception of his father-in-law. Works there for 20 years, hard labor, difficult labor, with a very duplicitous and mischievous and sly and cunning Lavan. And finally, after building his family there, 20 years later, at the end of the chapter, leaves and returns to, on his way to Eretz This is chapter Vayetze. Why am I summing it up? Because in essence, it captures the story of each of our lives as the Eretz which is cited in Exodus, explains Vayetzi Yakim Be'er Sheva. Why do we need to know the names of the places? Everything in the Torah is a lesson. Be'er Sheva, the fountain of seven. And Harana the word Charon, Comes from the word charein af, anger, God's wrath, because it was a very wicked city. And we see from the stories of Suel and Lovan and their behavior there, a corrupt city. So the Chaim, the commentary in the Torah says, and Chassidus elaborates, that this is referring to the general descent of the soul into this world. The soul leaves vayetze, Yaakov, referring to the soul, as it some explains, Yaakov. In the word Yaakov, you have Yud, the name of God, but Akiv, the heel. So the Yud of God is going into the heel, which is essentially the descent. Yaakov has another name, which he will gain later in the next week's chapter, um, Yishlach, Yisrael. But meanwhile, he's called Yaakov, referring to his descent into the lowest of low. From Be'er Sheva, the fountain of seven, which refers to the seven emotions of the world of Atzillus where all souls originate from the seven branches of the menorah, corresponding to the seven divine attributes. Chesed, Gvurah, Teferos, Netzach, Ched, Yoseid, Malchuz, the fountain of seven. And going where? To charon to a world that is a wrathful place, a hostile place, an angry place. A corrupt world where the divine is concealed, antithetical, the diametric opposite of Be'er Shava's charon so it captures in one verse the journey of the soul from the Igre Rama, from the highest heights, the Bira Mikta to the deepest pit. But the goal is to build a family there and to thrive and to grow and succeed and to transform the hostility and the corruption and the darkness of a world that initially is seemingly devoid of godliness transform it into a home for God. So it's one thing to be in Be'er Sheva, that's a beautiful holy place, the holy land, but it's another is to come into this darker place and transform that, and that was Yaakov's journey. And every detail of this chapter is another aspect of this journey. As I said, it's not the place or time to go into all the details, but everything, from his tending the sheep, from his marrying Rachel and Leah, the Shvatim are born here, except Binyamin, the youngest son, his interaction with Lavan, the meaning of the word Lavan, all of it is discussed at length in Kabbalistic and Hasidic discourses, explaining the relevance to how the whole cosmic order is structured, with Yaakov being the archetype of the ultimate of the patriarchs, after Abraham being chesed, kindness, and Yitzchak, on the other end of the spectrum, gvura, discipline, comes Yaakov Yaakov is the middle path, Emes, teira Teferis, compassion, bringing together the best of all worlds and building the foundations of what would become the pillars of the Jewish people. Because it's these tribes that would later go down to Egypt. These are the tribes that would come out of Egypt. And these are the tribes that we all descend from, whoever we are. Whether you're Kohen, a Levi from the tribe of Levi, or Yisroel from the other tribes, we all descend from them. Where is this all built? Of all places, not in the holiest of places, in Choram. Which of course is the message and lesson very clear that our mission, as difficult as it may be, is empowering and God is with us that no matter what challenges we face in the Choram of our own personal lives, in the wrath of our lives, whatever, whatever dimension, whether it's very overt or very subtle, we have the strength to build and transform it into a home and to build the greatest Eternal nation possible, both in microcosm and a macrocosm. On a more subtle level, Chesedus explains that Vayetz Yakim Beresheva is a descent from the Yud of Chachma to the expansion of Bina, because as we know, microcosm, macrocosm, everything that is in a broader sense also exists on a more subtle and a more when you retrace its roots in a more spiritual and pristine place. And here is the connection to Tess Kislev, In a very beautiful sikha, talk of the Rebbe, in the year Tav Mem Zayin, it was Shabbos Vayetzeh, and that year, the Kfiyas, the schedule was, the Yitzhi was the 11th of Kislev. Not like this year, but nevertheless, the Rebbe began the Fabringen, and this is printed in the Sefer Sikhs, Tav Shemem Zayin, volume 1, page 102 and on and explains the connection of Ayetzei with the Mitla Rebbe, because Yud Kislev, the day after Teskislev, which will be next Sunday, and we'll discuss it then, was, that, was this Fabrengen Yudalt Kislev, the Rebbe says today, is the Fabrengen that comes a day after Yud Kislev, which was Friday that year. And Teskis, Teskislev was Thursday. What is Yud Kislev? The gu'ula of the Mitla Rebbe. The year before his passing, he was arrested and released, like the Alter Rebbe before him, on the 19th of Kislev, this was on the Yud Kislev, Chaga Geula. But that first year of the redemption was also a day after the Al-Mitla Rebbe's passing. So the first Chaga Geula somewhat toned down the celebration because of the histalkus of the Mitla Rebbe, as I mentioned, Tes Kislev. So Tes Kislev was the birthday of the Mitla Rebbe, the histalkus of the Mitla Rebbe, a day after, a year after the pass, uh, uh, I'm sorry, a day after that his birthday, and which would later become his talco, the, the day after his birthday, in the last year of his life, he was also re- released from prison. And since then, we also call this a chaga go'ula, a redemption. In the Sikha, the Rebbe explains that vayetse, the yetziyah, refers to all types of going out from one level to another level. What was the mitla Rebbe's role? As much as we, in our limited way, can define it. So we were told by the Rabbeim that the Rebbe's, starting from the bal Shemtev, and the magid were come from the level, of, associate with the level of keser, keser, the crown. Keser has two di- two dimensions. One is Atik, arich, then and balshemtiv, and the, and the magid of Mizrich. The altar reb is Chochmeh. mitla reb is bina. When the reb marash said this, he said in the tate that some is das. And of course, the rabbeim later explained that the reb marash continues. For some reason, they skip chesed gvoird to The reb marash is. Netzach, the Rebbe Ahaid, uh, I'm sorry, the Friedrich and our Rebbe, the Malchus. So, Chokh bin Rebbe and we see it in a very vivid way, not just in a hinted way, we see it in the Exidus. Alta Rebbe wrote and spoke in the Kudus, relatively speaking. After Petterburg, after his release from prison, he expanded, but it was still relatively a a concentrated point. And the Mittler Rebbe, we see the Chevis Hanor of Bina, so for, for is like the Mayan, the spring of water, the drop, the Mitle Rebbe for every page of the Alter Rebbe, he has five, six, seven, sometimes more pages. And that's what we see in all the Chassidus of the Mitle Rebbe. And it's interesting also, you see the Mitle Rebbe also published his own works. The Alter Rebbe, Tanya was published in his time. And the Shorchan But the Mitle Rebbe was published many works. And they all have Alluding to Bina, Imre Bina, you have Shara Yichud, Shara Muna, Sharah Yispa'lus, Sha- Sha'arim is the Nun Bina, the fifteen gates of Bina. Bina is gates. When it comes to Chochmah, it says Lamad Bey's Nesivus Chochmah. There are thirty-two paths of Chochmah because it's a narrower path, but gates, wide gates. That's Bina, and that is also hinted to the names of many of the Sfarim, the books that were published by the Mitla Rebbe. An- another interesting thing, just as a, always interesting points to make, I believe the longest mimer the Rebbe himself ever said was on Shabbos Pashas, uh, it was a Tes Kislev, yes, Tes Kislev, Tof Lamet Ches. He actually said it from his room, Vishafti Bashalam. I believe it was a mimer for an hour and close to an hour and 20 minutes the longest, which is not surprising, considering that the Mitle rebbe's Maimorim, are often much longer than that. And you see, it literally, when you look at the Maimorim of the alta Rebbe, you see that Harkovah, that Vayetze, from Choch Metabina. And the Rebbe has some very interesting footnotes in this Sikha that talk about the hafotza, the spreading of Chassidus, obviously, is when you elaborate on it, and you bring it from the point, the spark of the conceived idea in Chochmeh, and you expand it in Bina, develop it, flesh it out, that, of course, increases the as the Rebbe explains at length in this Sikha, which you can all look up. Very many, many interesting points and nuances, and what better way to honor Tes Kislev, this coming Shabbos, and the connection to Vayetze in this in this particular Sikha, among others. I should also mention, I believe the only time the Rebbe ever said three Maimadim in one Shabbos Vashabbas yud Three memoram that year. And um, one of them were edited, was edited, but those three that the Rebbe said that year. Yeah. I think it was shafti b'sholem, vashavti v'hoyez aracha, and p'adav v'sholem, if I recall correctly. Okay. What's the lesson for us? Chesidah applied. Chesidah applied is a concept of v'yayetzeh. Not just enough to learn the idea and it's, pure and concentrated form, Chochme, but to develop and understand it in ways that we comprehend, which in turn gives birth, as Chassidus explains, <inaudible> if Abba Chochme is the father, Abba, Bina is Ima, the mother, and where does the fetus, where does the child develop, as the Rebbe explains in some of these notes in this sikh I just referred to in Tov Shemem it develops within the mother, Bina gives allows the child to develop. And the same thing is when it comes to a contemplation. When you learn something, you want to apply it. Give birth to an emotion. Give birth to an action. A- apply it and bring it into action. You need Bina, because without that, you just have a spark. It doesn't mean you can't learn a lesson from the Altar, that was my modern, God forbid. Obviously you can't. But with the Bina development, it's far, far easier to relate to it because you see the nuances and the details and the fleshing out that allows it to be an organized structural idea rather than just a concept. <clears throat> and once you have that, you're capable of then bringing it into action, the birth of Midas, and then, of course, from, from emotions to actual thought, speech, and action in an applied way. So learning Chassidus is not just reading the words, not just even understanding the basic principles, but actually fleshing it out as much as possible. And each of us in our own way. And we get the strength from the Rabbeim, because each Rebbe did his part, so to speak, primarily. Obviously, the Alt Rebbe has a Chachme, Bina, and Das as well. But primarily, it was Chachme, the Mittler primarily Bina. And the Vayetse is going from the highest levels. You bring it from the Yud, you bring it into. Yud this is, of course, the Yud of Chachme, the spark. The Hay of Yud Kevavke, the Hay is Bina, it's expanded. Vav is the transmission of the emotions. And the final he is Malchus, where the recipient receives it also in an expansive way. So all this can be applied in many different ways. Here's just a brief approach to it. And Tel Nechachem, the Yechchem Eid, which means give to the wise and they will further make it even wiser and even more developed. <clears throat> okay. Let me also give you some cross-referencing, as I mentioned, to other times we spoke about this topic. Pasha Vayetze was spoken about in chapters 44, I'm sorry, in, in episodes, 44, 90, 189, and Tess Kislev in episodes 91, 140, and 190. This, let me use this opportunity that all these archives are accessible and available for free at MeaningfulLife.com slash You have all the archives of all the 234 previous episodes, plus the forum where you can submit any question, any question. Nothing is off limits. Completely anonymously and confidentially. Uh, You can make a comment, you can add, you can subtract, you can criticize anything you wish, and I will try to address it in future programs. We have many questions coming in, but thank God I believe I'm catching up even though there is new ones. So we're moving along so your questions will be addressed. We also have there a section with all the essays of the previous four years of essay contests, hundreds and hundreds of essays written by individuals, men and women from all over the world, young men and women from all over the world, older people, all ages, all posted there every week. We review three new essays from the last contest, Tremendous material. I'm always amazed when I look at the topics chosen, the way it's addressed, the diversity of approaches, all engaging in the thing that the Rabbeim gave their lives for, giving us chassidus, writing, dedicating their time, most of their time, in writing and teaching chassidus in order for us to take it and apply it to our lives. I will also mention that this program is community-sponsored, meaning... It's a free program and it's your support, your financial support, sponsorships and dedications that makes it possible, allows us also to expand and grow. So please consider dedicating a program or a series of programs to the, in honor of a loved one or memory of a loved one, an excellent opportunity to connect these type of chassidus apl- applications to a person and their honor. Okay, with that, let us go now to some do questions, and we shall also do some follow-up. Let us begin. This was actually an outgrowth of the discussion in the previous weeks about the Pittsburgh Massacre, so another topic emerged that I didn't want to address last week because I believe it should be separated, as I discussed at length, and I'll, al- I'll reiterate now, but the question was, what attitude should one have to conservative and reform Judaism? And here's how the writer puts it in detail. What is the Rebbe's opinion with regards to, refer, to referring to reform or conservative temples as synagogues? It, it is clear that the Rebbe had a strong opinion with regards to their inclusion in certain boards and synagogue committees, meaning not to be included, as is evident from this letter. And the letter is a letter from the 15th of Tammuz 5719, July 21st, 1959. If anybody wants to have a copy of the letter, just email us in the form that I described and give us your email address so we can send it to you. And um, do I have the letter with me? Okay. However, is there any way you know that the Rebbe speaks positively about such institutions? Also, would it be right to consider the the prayer said in the temples as davening to Hashem, thus being appropriate to speak fondly of the activities that happen in these temples. Any comment on the topic will be greatly appreciated. Love the program. So the first thing I want to make clear that I said last week, but I want to reiterate. This has absolutely nothing to do with the events that happened in Pittsburgh, the tragic events, because firstly the Jews were killed because they're Jewish. That was clear, kill all the Jews. That's a kid of It makes no difference where the Jews were, what type of Jews they are, and absolutely no difference. Just as when we speak about, um, God forbid, the six million, we don't start measuring and people's Yerushalayim, because first of all, all of us are under the same microscope if we start doing that. And a Kiddush Hashem is a Kiddush, a Jew is a Jew. So I just want to separate it completely independent. Regarding your question, so it's actually, it's not the Rebbe's opinion, the Rebbe's a Torah person, a halacha person. So there's halacha about this. The Rebbe cites it in that letter that you referred to, based on the Rambam in Hilchus Tshuva 3.8, chapter 3, halacha 8, where he talks about what is considered faith and what is not considered faith. And this is not a personal response. This is a question of what are the standards, just like the Constitution of the United States, has standards of what is considered a law, what's not considered a law, what's legitimate, what's not legitimate. The Torah obviously established standards. And one of the standards is the belief that the Torah was given from heaven and that every word in the Torah was done as, as such. And you can't just cut out a part of it because you feel it may not be convenient or because you don't feel it's relevant today. So I'm talking purely ideology right now. Not talking about individuals. We're not talking about souls. This has no effect on a person's soul. Let's talk about the concept of someone that does not accept those principles. So, in a sense, they're basically disqualifying themselves from what the Torah considers to be a fundamental principle, which is faith in God and faith in the Torah given by God and faith in the oral Torah interpreted by God's people, Tanoim, Amoraim, and Nesheinim, And that has been what has kept us together, this type of standard. Now, unfortunately, yes, there are people of different opinions. And though, obviously, a person can have an opinion, a person has a right to not believe they want. No We're not here to impose. But that also... State something when a person makes a statement about their beliefs or lack of beliefs, it also tells you where they stand and whether they should be, can be considered an authority or not. Like, I mean, this again is not meant to throw any aspersions at any individual, but if someone does not accept that the Torah has all this divinity to it and it's divine in every nuance, then in a sense they're saying, I'm not authority on this Torah. Can there be authority on the way they interpret Torah? They can be, but who's going to accept that except someone who denies as well in the veracity and in the authenticity and the divinity that the Torah was given by God at Sinai. And it's not a man-made product, a man-made book and so on. So it's really based on the Rambam. Now, this has nothing to do with our attitude. This has to do with stating something. It's just like if you go to a lawyer And I make this very clear because I know people can be offended by the things I've said, and I know that there are conservative, quote-unquote, Jews that associate with the conservative movement, and Jews that associate with the reform movement, and Jews that associate with Reconstructionists, and Jews that associate with other denominations, or, or no denomination that listen to this program, and read and as well listen to other programs that I do. So I want to make it very clear. What I'm talking now is literally like a lawyer come to a lawyer, a lawyer has to tell you what is the acceptable standards, for example, for, uh, for, uh, if you want to b- buy a house. So you need a mortgage company, an insurance company. A good lawyer, a good attorney representing you is going to make sure you have the AAA insurance, not AA. Now I say, who decides? Well, the Torah itself tells us its standards. And of course, Torah authorities decide. What happens if there's a disagreement? The Torah itself tells you what we deal with disagreements. Here's not the place to go into the whole process, but rest assured, Jews, three and a half thousand years ago in the time, 3,300 years ago in the time of Sinai, starting from Moses, there was a process how to teach Torah, how to interpret Torah, what do you do when there are disagreements, how do you come to consensus, what's considered in the pale, what's considered out of the pale. It is only in the last few hundred years that there have been people who have changed those standards. So, I am not here again to take, go into a debate or any polemics on this topic, but the question is being asked. I've always spoken straight, and I'm speaking straight as well. I understand someone says, so "You're disqualifying me as a conservative, as a rabbi, or, or a reform I'm not doing anything. I'm repeating what the Rambam says. I'm repeating what has been known for thousands of years. Actually, the proof of burden lies on those that want to change something. Why? Why? Why shouldn't? Why should? <laughs> I, you feel that I'm offending you. Maybe you're offending not me, because I'm not personally offended at all, but maybe you're offending those that have been following something for, let's say, you could say almost 3,000 years. Matan Torah was in the year 2448, so we're talking about over 3,330 years ago. And, uh, and, and the birth of the Reform Movement is 300 years, 350 years. So you have to ask yourself, what caused the change over after 3,000 years? What changed? So again, this is not the point of the discussion to go into the history, why there's much to say in it. I have much to say on the topic. I'm trying to answer the question. As far as the attitude to the Jew, to every Jew, as I mentioned, Kiddush Hashem for sure. But even we don't have to wait for a massacre to be united. Every Jew is part of the Jewish people. doesn't make a difference what choices he makes or she makes, what beliefs or not. Obviously there are categories that, that the Rambam, another state, when a person makes a statement, well, what are they capable of, being a witness or not a witness, a rabbi, not a rabbi, authority, not authority. But that's, in every system you're going to find standards like that. But as far as what we say in the morning, Anila I acknowledge to you, God, for returning my soul to me. The soul that you've given me is pure. There's no rabbi in the world, even the most zealot, Haredi, the most zealot, ultra-Orthodox, if you're going to use labels already, that will say, you know what, a Jew that does not believe, or a Jew that is a Reformed Jew or a conservative Jew, and again, I don't like those terms, that associates with the Reform movement, a conservative should not say that prayer. My soul that that you've given me is pure. Because everyone's soul is pure by virtue of God. We can't do anything about that. The question is how much access, how much consciously are you experiencing that? Not to compare, but if a person does a crime, any one of us, myself included, the soul remains pure. But at this point, think of it like the arteries are somewhat clogged. So the the flames of the soul are not being fanned into my conscious life or into someone's conscious life, like the famous expression in the Gemara Brochus, a thief, before he goes to steal, he prays to God to succeed. God said, signif, do not steal. How could, you know, it's one thing, you're ignoring God. You're, you're, uh, that moment, you're believe, making believe there is no God watching you. So the Chassidus so explains because a moon of faith can be makif, it can be a dissonance, a detachment. You believe, you pray, and then you behave not accordingly. What does that mean? The Neshama remains pure. Even if he sins Yisrael, he's still Yisrael, still a Jew. But now there's a certain block. We have to now clean it up. We do that through tshuva and so on. That said, I wanted to share a story because this really is the other side of the coin that I want to share. And then one more thing from the Rebbe's talks, asked about a positive thing. Interestingly, the Rebbe spoke about that actually as well. After my book tour, The Meaningful Life was published, so I went on a, the publisher sent me on a book tour all across the country. It started out as 20 cities and ended up being 90 cities. There were large turnouts. It was very successful. One of the places I ended up was International Miami Book Fair in November every year. And my book was one of the books chosen to be showcased, and I was one of the featured speakers. When there were larger audiences, I spoke you speak in Colony Theater in South Beach on Lincoln Road in, in Miami. And I spoke in this theater, beautiful theater, acoustics, perfect acoustics. After my talk, a woman gets up in the back and says... I'd like to know, what is your opinion on conservative Judaism? I think she said, "What is the Rebbe's opinion and your opinion on conservative Judaism?" Because I hear people like you don't recognize it as legitimate, and I don't want to buy the book of a bigot. That's what she said. I remember there was a hush, all the people in the auditorium. You know, it was like a chutzpah question. Some would even call it heckling. I, frankly, took it very in stride, saw it as an opportunity and it became so silent, clearly many people wanted to see what I'm going to say. So I decided to to do it more dramatically, and I said, it's very true, the Rebbe, I, as a student of his, don't recognize it as legitimate conservative Judaism. And I fell silent, which wasn't easy to do. I I don't know how much time passed, it felt like a lot of time, but the whole place began to hem and haw, and literally you could sense the tension in the air, So I said, before you get violent, before you stone me, let me share with you the following. I also don't recognize Orthodox Judaism, nor Reformadox or or Conservadox, nor Ultra-Orthodox, nor all the different denominations that were and all the other doxes that will and were created and will be created. You know why? Because in the constitution of Judaism, called the Torah, there's no reference or even allusion made to any of these names, these labels. I once heard, I don't know if it's the Rebbe that said it, but they say in the Rebbe's name, that labels are for clothing, not for souls, not for people. So there's nowhere in the Constitution such names mentioned. So where do they come from? These are man-made names that came in the last hundred years. Conservative actually was a response to reform. Orthodox was a response to both of them. And why are we stuck in man-made bureaucracies? And I reverse the question to you, I said, and to all of you. Was Moses orthodox, conservative, or reform? And a soul is a soul born, an orthodox soul, a conservative soul, a reform soul? They all burst out laughing. And what about God? Is God orthodox, conservative, or reform? Is he even Jewish? So, anyone even with ostensible knowledge of spirituality knows that a soul cannot be defined by man made labels or stereotypes. A soul is not square, it's not rectangle, it's not a circle. It's not brown, black, or white or yellow, and neither does it have these other names. And no one's born with a conservative soul, or a reform soul, or orthodox soul. These are maybe corporate bureaucratic names. So how are we even applying it? We are all a souls—a soul is a soul, a soul, a piece of God. Chelik alekam emal in the words of Tanya, chapter two. I'm not going to elaborate more what I said there. That was more or less it. It was a very strong positive reaction. The point I want to make is that is the real punchline and the bottom line when it comes to this. Okay, and I think it's, the message is clear. This is not a contradiction at all to what I said because it's two separate things. What are the standards for, you know, I'm not a Cohen. I'll never be a Cohen. I'm not a Levite. You have to have credentials to be a rabbi. You have to have credentials to, for any particular position to be a Dayan, a Pesach, and so on. The question is what are those credentials? That's not at all what we're discussing now. Which is the Jewish soul, the soul? Now, in relation to a positive message, yes. So there's indeed a seicha yud based tamuz tofshin yud ches. the Rebbe speaks and mentions the denominations, reform, conservative, and reform. He says, regardless of the Rambam that I mentioned before, everything we learn ezul chacham alebin mekol adam. Who is the wise person who learns from everyone? That there are three things we can learn from the conservative and the reform, and halavai we should emulate them. In what matter? One, they don't speak during davening and Torah reading. Two, not to raise money for the shul through um, through uh, through the, the rabbi mentioned bingo uh, cards, ping pong, and all done in a, it should be done in a respectful way to the shul. And three, not to challenge the rabbis' rulings. So yes, the Rebbe said that clearly in the Sikhi, Yud based Tama's Tov chai. Okay, I think enough on this topic. I'm sure there'll be feedback and comments, and I welcome them of all levels. And please, if you have more thoughts or you have any ideas on this matter, as I said, just share it on the forum that's at meaningfullife.com/slash my life. Next question. This was this is titled Question from a Nugei Nagelapel, which means not just theoretical, it's uh, relevant, about creating an endowment. And the question is, what is the Rebbe's opinion about creating an endowment? Hi, Rebbe Simon. I know you recently spoke about this on an episode of Applied Chis, but none could locate it for me. Do you, firstly, just in response, I looked for it myself. I don't believe I spoke about it. I spoke about charity, but I could not find it. Now, that doesn't mean I didn't speak about it. I just don't recall. Do you know if the Rebbe was opposed in any way to accepting or creating endowments for Chabad houses? Thanks. Then the the writer continues that he read a letter, which I have before me, a letter that was written actually to uh, Mr. Irving Stone, Cleveland, a great philanthropist. And was about, um, he, he was consulting with the Rebbe about ways to make sure that he maximizes his giving charity. So we have the letter that he wrote to the Rebbe, basically asking about the president's institutions should be helped well as, a, how do we help institutions in an organized and strategic way? Through a foundation, but done in a way that is properly researched, and um, and will also be make sure that you give maximize the way you give, and not scrounge it or not in any way waste it, so the Rebbe, he writes, we feel a strong responsibility to set up the proper program to further teaching teacher training at tor- true tr- tr- institutions in, per- in perpetuity. How to set up the correct programs is of deep concern to us. Any help and suggestions you can give us in solving our problem will be greatly appreciated. This is what Mr. Stone wrote to the Rebbe. The Rebbe responded, and for the record, this is in 1973. The Rebbe's letter is, is uh, dated Rosh Chedesh of Tavshinlam and Gimel, July 30th, 1973. I'm not going to read the whole letter, but the Rebbe responds, he says, Permit me, therefore, first of all, to point out some of the pitfalls which have hampered such highly desired objectives on the part of similar foundations. For the avoidance of these pitfalls is the first step in meeting the urgent needs. Unfortunately, the Rebbe writes, in very series of philanthropy, what has happened is that before actual distribution of funds is commenced, a preliminary and lengthy research or study program is initiated. While this approach is generally motivated by a desire to distribute funds more effectively and may be commendable theoretically, the net result has all too often been to delay actual distribution of urgently needed funds immediately. Quite apart from the fact that substantial funds have thus been diverted from their main purpose. And he continues to talk about the emergency for education, Jewish education. A further point, that Rebbe says, which is also mentioned in your letter, is the prevalent policy of foundations not to touch the principal at any time, but to make distributions from income only. This policy, too, may be commendable in normal times, but in times of emergency such as now, exists. I believe that a more flexible policy is clearly called for. Obviously, however substantial the income may be, it is only a fraction of the actual reserve, and, their, and where there is a case of life-saving, some of the reserves should also be brought into play. Okay. The Rebbe continues elaborating on this point. And so, this you pretty much see that the concept of an endowment, which is essentially putting aside endowing money, the money will not be touched, but it's like guarantees the security of the institution through the interest or other ways that that money generates money. That in general, that was not necessarily the Rebbe's approach. Here, he says that it should be considered. I've heard, but this needs to be verified, and I have not um, verified it myself. I've heard that the Rebbe gave different directives to the Secretariat that he was not for endowments. So if anybody has more information on this topic, please share it with me. I will share it. Please go on in this program. And that is what I will comment now. Again, if you want to see this letter, I'll be happy to send it to you, both letters. And just go go to MeaningfulLife.com slash my life. The Rebbe has a second letter that follows up Again, Um, in continuation, but I believe I read the gist of what is relevant to us here. Okay, good. Next. Next question is, um, okay, this is a more sensitive topic, viewer discretion advised. This is a discussion about what the world calls homosexuality. So, though I've talked about this topic in episodes 12, 13, 80, and 180, and I really felt I covered it pretty comprehensively, which is why I didn't go back to it, but I have to be honest that questions have come in since. Some of them are a repeat of those questions, but from time to time, because it is a prevalent topic and it's one that is on people's minds, I think it would be amiss of me not to address it But referring you to the main bulk of my discussion was back in episodes 12, 13, 80, and 180. So I'll touch upon it, just share a few more thoughts, perhaps repeat some of what I said there, maybe an additional point. So I have two questions. Actually, one came in today once this topic was announced, and one is from a little while back. So the first questioner writes, Hi, Rabbi Jacobson. Well, the essence of the question, let me just read the essence of the question before I elaborate. How can it be prohibited if it is innate? She writes, "Hi, Rabbi Jacobson. I heard the episodes regarding the issue of homosexuality, and I tried to tell it to some friends, but they made that they made some some questions that I confess they they asked me some questions that I confess I didn't know how to answer. Can you please help me? If according to medicine, science, physiology, it is impossible to cure someone that has." homosexuality, homosexual inclinations, so is God giving them a test that is impossible to pass? Point two, and if they say, okay, I'm going to marry the opposite sex, opposite gender, even though I have no attraction, is this right? Should we allow or encourage this type of marriage? Third point, and finally, could we say that science proves that it is impossible to cure homosexuality is against the Torah view? Could we say that science proofs is against the Torah view? Thanks in advance. A second questioner writes about tonight's class and homosexuality. I'm asking, what is my life's mission? I'm a married religious young Jew with a loving romance with my beautiful wife. Yet I find myself having fantasies, homosexual fantasies, and it causes major confusion on a deep level affecting my mental health and my drive in life. How can I approach this? I'm a deep-spirited seeker who desires fulfillment and oneness. So I'll answer both one at a time. So again, I'm referring back to the episodes where I discussed it more at length. I'm going to be much more brief here. And please go there. I'm not, I want to make it clear that I'm not trying to avoid it. I discussed it at length. In addition, I actually read a letter from the Rebbe to someone who wrote similar questions to the Rebbe. And it's interesting as well as the sikhah from Purim Tov Shemem Vav, where the Rebbe spoke about it, rights versus ills, and then edited heavily a number of times in English, and it was published. So all these materials, the Rebbe's letter and that talk in English, are available, again, write to us at this forum, com slash MyLife. Give us your email address, I'll be happy to share it, because the Rebbe's words are, of course, better than anything I could say. But I'll sum up the gist of it. The Rebbe acknowledges and and says, even if it is nature, innate, that doesn't mean we have to give in to everything that is part of our nature. The Rebbe gives examples. People are born with all kinds of different tendencies. That doesn't mean you can't control yourself and you can't channel it. So yes, God would never prohibit something that's impossible. If God would say in the Torah, if the Torah would say a, a statement that says, don't eat for three weeks at all, it's impossible for the to live without eating. If it says you have to jump up 20 floors, that's impossible. Change the color of your eyes. You have ru'an eyes. You can't change the color of your eyes. The Torah never will ask us to do something that's impossible to do because that would just be plain cruel. So that means the Torah prohibits it. It means that even if it's innate, we can do something about it. So that's statement number one. Whether it's innate or not, that's a debate, and some say nurture and nature overlap. But the Rebbe in the letter says clearly, and in the Sikha too, in that talk in Purim, that even if it's innate, that doesn't mean we can't control, it doesn't mean we cannot channel, we can't harness, and we could also direct it in other places. It needs work. But we have to separate it from the politics around the topic, where people have given themselves a license, and they don't care what the Torah says. And then, of course, when you want to indulge in something that may be of tendency, and you're not looking to control I may be very. Then, of course, you have that battle is almost going to be impossible to win. Now, I know people, and I say it with my full heart, have told me they've tried as much as possible. Like this individual, the second question you ask to marry a woman, and they don't find it possible. I, what I say to people like that is, it's never impossible. I understand the difficulty, and I, may, I don't. I, I should correct myself. I don't understand it because I'm not in that position, but. In one of the letters the Rebbe writes, the fellow writes to the Rebbe, so why would I be given such a test? Something that's so difficult. So the Rebbe says, interestingly, in order to bring out greater strengths that would never have been brought out from you unless you had this test. Again, suggesting that you do not have to give in to this tendency. More details I refer to my previous programs on this topic, and I don't want to discuss it further because I'm just really repeating what I said there. So please look there. As far as the second questioner, as far as the second questioner, look, you say in the same sentence that you're blessed with a beautiful wife, a loving romance. I mean, God has given you a gift. Clearly, you have a happy life with her. So the fact that you have fantasies or thoughts, who doesn't have makshavah zarah from time to time, which means inappropriate thoughts? Tanya says that three things happen every day you can't control. Ehudah is one of them, negative thoughts. But you can control whether you'll dwell on it. So when you have such a thought, say to yourself, God blessed me with a beautiful wife, with a loving romance. Let me build my family. We have thoughts. Some people have thoughts not about the same gender. They may have thoughts of another gender, of, of a woman. It's not a matter what. What do you do? You push it aside like he explains in Tanya. Above all, I want to say this to everybody, no matter what situation you're in. The best way to fight challenges is to fill your life with extremely positive, passionate activity. In the case that I just said to you, you're married, find ways to enhance that marriage. Let the romance grow. Let the love grow. Other people who have these challenges, find a cause that you can believe in, that you really believe is God's cause. Why am I saying it? Not because to get your mind off of it. Because if you're, all your energy is going purely, purely to, this, to deal with the sexual challenges you have, that is overwhelming for any person. You have to have more in your life. You have to have a life of purpose. Feel my work. Your, your talents, your skills, your opportunities are used in the right way, it just makes the tension a lot less. Then it'll be easier, it'll be a stronger person to be able to deal even with such challenges. I find this to be a tremendous, important piece of advice. Alta says it essentially in Tanya about atzvus, depression. He says when you're fighting, uh, when you're struggling, when you're uh, wrestling with someone and, you're, and you feel down, that alone will make you weaker and you won't be able to wrestle properly. To deal with challenges, you have to be strong. And to be strong, you have to build up the parts of your life that can be built up. The things that you have to contribute to this world. That you come home at the end of the day feeling proud of yourself. Feeling feeling accomplished. Feeling you've done something to make this world a better place. You've done something to fulfill the mission. And to actually do justice to God's vote of confidence in you. That is something that we have to focus on. Spreading light. When you have much more light in your life, then you can deal with the darker Elements. Darker elements means the challenges, including the challenge of gender and sexual identity and pursuing that and not pursuing it because you have then that focus. And now let me deal with this issue and see how I can deal with it. I, no question, the strength in one part of your body and one part of your spirit will give you strength in other areas. So I don't have an answer because it's case by case. Everyone has its unique challenges, but know this God created you, He created your sexuality. He gave you perhaps challenges, we all have challenges, tendencies, predispositions, but he's also given you the power to do something about it. And most importantly, the power to come into this world and bring your unique light. You must know that, or else you can be overcome by guilt, by obsessions, by fantasies and desires that will just destroy your life. Demons, of one sort or another. Fears, guilt, as I mentioned, neurosis. You have to focus on, why am I here? Why did God put me here? And that's a bigger picture than just your sexuality, which is one piece of that, an important piece. But it's a part part of your relationships, part of building a family, building a home. Okay. Next question. Why does Judaism reject the Messiah that other religions have embraced? And here's a few questions that came in. Two particularly, and then, and more actually over the time. Why can't Yoshka be the Messiah? al Litzlan, I should add. But someone wrote that. Someone else wrote, I was driving on a highway in Indiana and saw a larger billboard that said, J J is for Yoshka, promised he will deliver. I began to think, and I hope nobody's offended by this, but this is exactly the letter. I'm going to tone it down a bit, but that slogan sounds so familiar. Since after Gimel Tamas, we've heard it thousands of times. Is my belief system just an accident of birth geography? What makes my belief or my slogan any more valid than theirs in Indiana? So am I to accept that I've been born in Indiana, that had I been born in Indiana rather than Crown Heights, I would believe that he will deliver, that Jay will deliver on his promise? Wow, that sure challenges the truth of my childhood belief system. What makes my belief in his fulfilling his promise really any different? Than the believer in Indiana's belief in theirs. Am I missing something? Yes, you are missing something. And I address this because even though it's a very distasteful topic and I prefer not to address it, but people ask this question and we need to have an answer. It's not just Dama not just to know what to answer, but to actually answer. So as I mentioned before, and I mentioned virtually every program, we have a Torah. The Torah is our constitution, the Jewish constitution. The Torah is the word of God. It is God that told us that Mashiach will come. Someone asks you, how do you know Mashiach will come? You could say it's logical that history will have a conclusion, world peace. That's fine, but you could also make an argument against it. Anarchy can rule. We know it as the Rambam, which is the primary source in halacha. I would even say the only source, because Shulchan Ar-Nara doesn't address things in the Messianic era. The end of the last... Two chapters in Hilchas Melochim and Melchamayseim, chapters eleven and twelve, the conclusion of the Rambam's Mishnah he speaks. How do we know? Because the Torah said so. Because God revealed in the Torah that th- that there will be a Mashiach that He will send to this world. Just like He sent Moshe Rabbeinu to redeem the Jews from Egypt, Mashiach will redeem the Jews and the entire world from this exile and rebuild the base of And bring back the mitzvahs in ways that we can fulfill them in the completest way. Gather the exiles. I'm not saying in the same order. And he goes through the steps. All based on verses and sources of what defined Mashiach. And then he goes even further. Some of it has been censored over the years. But we have the original Rambam. And he talks directly about Jesus. And he talks even about Muhammad. Islam. Christianity and Islam. You can look it up yourself. Briefly what he says is, and we have halachas for this. Just like someone will say, how do I know what it means to keep Shabbos? How do I know whether the chicken is kosher? How do I know what am I supposed to do on Pesach and what I'm not supposed to do? We have a Shulchan Aruch, based on Talmud, based on Roshinim, Achrenim, Tanoim, Amarayim, the whole corpus of Torah literature. And that's how we know. The same thing applied. Let's not get emotional about it. Let's not get controversial. We have halachas for this. So he says, how do you know what Mashiach is? He has to be from Beis David, the house of David. He has to be someone completely committed to Torah Mitzvah, someone that inspires others to do the same. V'yokuf. He has to fight a battle, doesn't say what the battle is. If he does, that is assumed, presumed Mashiach, Mashiach. Mish- if he continues and wins the battle and rebuilds the Beis Hamikdash, the third temple, them came in its place, and gathers Kibbutz Nitche Yisrael. Gathers the exiles all back to the holy land, to the promised land. Then he's Mashiach. And Oz Epech, El Am all the nations will speak one language of God. That's Mashiach Vada. And then all the nations, he says first Mashiach then oz Epech. Then he continues in the part that's, that's been censored out and says, regarding the claims about Jesus, the fact of the matter is that was also prophesied as someone who will abuse that. And says clearly that he broke the laws, did not bring peace, he brought sword, he brought death and pain and blood. Everything opposite of what Mashiach is supposed to bring. And above all, he has to keep the mitzvahs, not change them and not break them. Nobody can change one mitzvah, as he says there. So the reasons are very clear. This is not a personal rejection of somebody. They have to perform certain standards. Lahavdal, even (laughs) Moshe Rabbeinu. It says, a prophet that changes something in the Torah, he, he disqualifies himself, like we spoke earlier. This is not a personal thing. It's not an election. It's not about popularity contest. Mashiach is chosen by God, and he follows certain guidelines. Then the Rambam continues, but we don't know the mysteries of God. We don't know God's mysteries. The fact that he allowed it to proliferate, Christianity and also Islam, is because in some mysterious way, that helps pave the way toward Mashiach. Because it brings the message to all the corners of the world, however however distorted, but there's truth to it. Which is something we talked about, I believe, other times. So the bottom line answer is very straightforward. There are guidelines. What defines Mashiach, what not? And one of the most important guidelines is uh, the upkeep, not just the upkeep, the preservation, and the proliferation of Torah and as it says in Tchumosh, Torah Shabikshav and Torah Everyone needs to have this, these answers provided. I know people sometimes meet different people in different places that start giving them all kinds of proofs, which is another discussion here. But there are good books on this topic that really show you that the proofs are all nonsense, distortions, misinterpretations. But above all, as I said, it's all Mashiachs to bring a certain world mashiach their criteria. It's not about who it is; it's what he does. And that what it does is the key to the, for determining whether this is the right person. That, that God wants to bring the Geula to this world. Okay. See also episode, episodes 47 and 48, where I discuss this further. Okay. I want to now cover a few follow-ups. One was episode 230, which I pushed off, so I want to just, let me deal with that. Hi Rabbi Jacobson, it was about... A marriage, someone felt stuck in marriage. I want to comment on the question you received from a Sotmer woman about being stuck in an unhealthy marriage. Just a moment, let me make sure. Yeah. I believe in episode 230. Eschatose ani hayem, being The person is mentioning their own sin, so to speak. I was recently watching a Megyn Kelly show where she was interviewing a Hasidic woman who unfortunately left the community and Judaism. The woman conveyed that she basically had an arranged marriage. She met her future husband twice for 15 minutes. That was supposed to be dating. She was 18 years old. He was 17 years old of age. The woman continued that she was having a baby year after, babies year, after year. She fell into depression. She just couldn't take it anymore. She just had to get out. My question basically to you is as follows. I'm not Satmar, so my information comes from shows like I mentioned above, which I know are not to. Are not too sympathetic to the Hasidic community, and hearsay, and, 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 and from those shows and from hearsay. However, much is said; much that is said is true. I've heard there's a very high divorce rate in Satmar. After all, a seventy-year-old is still, in many ways, a child, and their personality not fully developed. And by the time they turn twenty-three, there's a, they're, they're a different person. So it's pretty clear that this system is not working. Why don't? Why doesn't their leadership change the marriage age like it's done in Lubavitch or the Litvish community where the boys get married at the age of 22, 23? Alternatively, at least, they change the age the boys get married instead of 17 to start getting married at the age of 20. And additionally, they should allow their young people to date like the rest of the Orthodox community. After all, they'll have to live with each other for the rest of their lives. Shouldn't they choose whom they want to live with? After all, this country is not Iran. To sum up my question, why is it from community so afraid of change? If something is clearly not working, why not make changes? It's a no-brainer. I don't get it. Thanks for all you do. I hope you can discuss these topics. That's Rab. So briefly, first of all, it's a great question, but you're writing it to the wrong address. I'm not a leader in that community or in any of those communities, and for that matter, in any community. I should add, <clears throat> um, the points are legitimate questions, some of them I could try to answer, but I don't want to do that, because again, it's not my role. They have their reasons, and I hope that they can look at it properly from a Torah perspective. Look, we have the expression Ben Shmonesel, the chuppah, that 18 is the age of chuppah. But we know that in many, many communities, that's not adhered to. They feel that if a person gets married young, that they will stay out of trouble. They have a wife, a wife has a husband, get the, get a job, and more or less, that will keep them, if they follow Torah and Mitzvahs, We live in a different type of world today, it's true, but some feel we have to keep up the old customs in that regard. Is it working or not? I can't tell you because I know marriages that do work and marriages that don't work. Is dating alone the factor? They date longer, not just twice or once or just for 15 minutes? I believe yes because it's important that a person feel more comfortable. But you can make the case that if people have Kabbalah sale and they're listening, that they could learn to appreciate somebody maybe not 15 minutes, a little more, or whatever it may be. But I'm not defending that, because I believe it's case by case. Some people I know, in our community, in other communities, where they dated once, three times, twice, and they right away made the decision They have very happy marriages. I know other people that twice simply would not work for them. Either they think too much, or they need to process, or whatever the reason is. Overdating for years is obviously also not an acceptable approach. So it's not a simple answer, because I really believe it's case by case and in individuals. I don't think pressure should be put. It should be an approach that works for couples. And if you see someone who's really having difficulty that approach, you have to be sensitive and address it. And if they have difficulties in their marriage due to that, that needs to also be addressed. I find that's all not being addressed in a, in a proper professional, Torah professional way. So... I am not going to comment on exactly each community, what they do, what they don't do, but rather to look at it in that broader sense and know that no, not one size fits all. I, I counsel people very often, and I always say take the time you need, just make sure it's a compatible type of approach, because both people should take the time that they need, and in a way that, that, uh, to, to integrate it, internalize it, but not to overthink it, because I see many people actually go with the other approach where they just take a secular approach. You know what? Well, we'll date forever. No, that doesn't work either. There's some things you find out after a number of dates, and there's some things you're not going to find out just because you date more. You ultimately have to make the decision. And God blessed us that we can meet somebody. And with the right communication and conversation, you could sense, is this the partner for my life? Is this someone that I can emotionally trust, that I know no matter what we deal with, I have a partner in life? person with midas state is good feeling good midas and so on i've talked about the topic of Shidduchim many times so i'm not going to go into what those conditions and those standards should be and values I'm just addressing this particular question shlichas somebody wrote about Schliches. this was a follow up to episode 232 i reluctantly had to leave my city of shlichas because of a person who was irrational as my superior he decided to mix into my personal life I, cons- I consulted with the veteran shliach, advised me not to go to the V'ad Rabboni Lubavitch because it'll be a waste of money since the since my superior will most probably win the case. I don't know if I agree with that. I think you have to go with a good tayin, with a good person who presents the argument because you want to go to a rabbonim that both sides will accept. We always have the zabla option that you choose someone and the other one chooses. Everybody is subject to Adin and I believe that's the policy of Merkus today that... Um, a policy very straightforward, that if there's a disagreement, even if it's your superior, the person who brought you out, you're entitled to recourse. You have the recourse to go call them to identity and address it. The real shame is that there's so much work to be done in the city that I left. I listened to your episodes on this matter, but I feel I'm frozen. I can't do anything about it. I contacted some of the people in leadership. I told them my story, but there was no follow-up. I'm in tears as I write this. Well, I've already stated in my earlier discussion in episode 232 and before that, there's no question that we all have to put our heads together and live up to what the Rebbe wants. There's so so much work to be done exactly as you put it. It needs to be done in an orderly fashion, and I don't see any reason that every person who wants to go on shlichus should not have the opportunity. And where there's disagreements, there's ways to deal with it. As long as people have some humility, follow Torah guidelines, the Rebbe's guidelines, which are Torah guidelines, And the leadership in Merkis and everyone that's involved can definitely facilitate this in many ways. And what we have to do is keep pushing. Do not give up. Keep pushing. I don't think it has to be done with a fight. It has to be done with positive but persistent. And if enough of us push, we'll get done as good as possible as living up to the Rebbe's intentions and the Rebbe's objectives. Okay. There's some more follow-up. I wanted to cover, but I will cover it next week, simply because of time limits. So let's do the this question. It's a question that Teir Eir of yesterday, Parsha us. Dear Rabbi Jacobson, I don't understand the shift from the beginning. Oh, okay, one second. The title is Teir Eir, the first mimer, Dibra Maskel, Ela Teldus Yitzchok. So the person writes... I don't understand the shift from beginning to end of the Mimer. Beginning of the Mimer, Abraham has mixed in klipa and not Yitzchok. But later the Mimer changes that only Abraham has the power to remove the klipa. In the beginning, the Alter Rebbe says language that there's a Yenike, Sachitzenim, from Avram. At the end, he says that only Avram can be mevarer, can refine the K'yich that's Yetzel Lechutz. It's a good question, but I need to give some background what the Mimer is talking about. This is one of the most powerful classic maimorim from the Alter Rebbe, and then Torah, er, as I said, Pasha tells us, and he talks about the difference between Avram and Yitzchok. Because Avram is Chesed, Yitzchok is Gvura. Yemini and Smeil. Yemini Taches Lareishi. Sorry, Smeil Yemini So there's left and right. Chesed and Gvura. Chesed is Maimal Mam Shech Chesed. Avram was He brought he, he welcomed guests. This was tr- bestowing and transmitting kindness. And the main Aved of Yitzhok was the digging of wells, which is the opposite. There's water under the ground. You dig, and the water comes out, bursting forth from the bottom up. The interesting, Rab Hillel Parich, who has a mimer based on this, says that you have to say, that, that, that um, Yitzchak also did Achonses He grew up with it. But the primary thing, we don't read about in the Chumash because his primary Aveda was Kvurim However, here we go further. And Altanab discusses this in many angles, but I'm just touching the points relevant to us. We find Avram also dug wells. But then the Plishtim came and stuffed them up with earth. Yitzchak's wells, they did not. Not only that, Yitzchak went and re dug the wells of Abraham, of Avram. And this time then, they opened them up as well. So, the, of course, the question is, what does all this mean? What's this digging of wells? Obviously, it has deep spiritual meaning and personal relevance. So the al Rebbe explains, because Chesed, with all its power, bringing Elokus down to earth, bringing Chesed down to others, is with all its strength, has Yenikasachetzenim, which means the externals, other forces can, can be Yenik, can feed off of it. Can wean off of it. Can glean off, uh, can uh, nurse from it. That's the expression. Nurse from it. And the plishtim is an example. What do plishtim represent in in the, in, the, in the psychology, psychological, their archetype? The archetype of of, of Litzonus and Halalus, Puskait. That's what he says. Puskait and Litzonus, just Litzonus. It's, uh, the Mitleleb the mitle, actually writes in Yiddishkeit, Puskeit and kite. Hefkaitis. That is a, the, the antithesis, the Le'umazeh of Chesed. So obviously Avram, God forbid, was anything close to it, but they were able to yenig. Therefore, they were able to stuff up his Chesed, because when you have Chesed and it's flowing, the flowing can be a flow of complete, the opposite extreme, which is flowing in the wrong way, where people just sit around and just have fun, because they're in a Chesedic mood. When you have pachad, alekim, fear, awe of God, the yira of Yitzchak, yira does not let you be a letz, a sit in a meish of leitzim. Because you have awe, you're standing in front of the king, you don't make letzones. So Avram, of course, did not have that. But chesed, because you have the, the, that flow of your spirit, is flowing forth. It could be in a positive way, it could be in a negative way. He explains also the difference between Yishmael and Plishtim, especially in Teres Chaim, the Mitle Rebbe, and I refer that, to, and to understand the Maimur, well, you have to learn the Tehras Chaim at length. I mentioned before the Mitla Rebbe, he elaborates, literally it's a Maimur five times the size of the original Maimur in And the Tzema too in the volume 4 of Bereshit on the Maimarim of Tehras has his gloss and footnotes and comments on these Maimarim. Where there you can get clara- more clarity. But then let's get to the second half of what he says. He says, okay, fine. So Yitzchak, therefore, his Aveda cannot be stuffed up by the Plishtim. Because Tzonis cannot enter because the Yazira, it's Mamat Or to put it in stronger words, when you refine something from the bottom up, it becomes so refined and it reaches a level that's even higher than where the Chesed originated from, from, Yitz, from Avram. So Yitzchok's Aveda Mamat transforming from the bottom up, creates an intensity similar to Tshuva, that's stronger than D'Aved of Tzaddikim, which is Er Yashar. So of Avram is more a direct light that comes from above down. It's powerful. But it's not the power of Erhezer, the refractive light that comes from the bottom up. And he even says that, so the Be'eles of Avram, he also dug wells, but his wells were more the surface water that came from rain and others. Yitzchuk's wells were more touching the Tahim, which is the water that's deep in the ground. And what happens when you touch that, like where wells come, where a real well? in that sense, even though Avram was also a well, but it was not as deep, then the water bursts forth with the same intensity, but it's coming from the bottom up, instead of from the top down, like rain. Discusses this as as well. So Yitzchok not only had the power to create such deep wells by transforming earth itself, and eliminating the possibility of the negative plishtim to cover it up and block it up, but he also had the ability to open up the wells that Avram avinu, that were stuffed by the Litzonis. Because by introducing Yirah to Chesed, to the Chesed and the Ava of Avram, the love of Avram coupled with the Yirah of Yitzchak allows you to even open up the wells that the Plishtim had contaminated or blocked up. But then he continues. and says, everything comes, however, from Avram. That's why it says, Ela told us Yitzchak. And then it says, Avram, hailed us Yitzchak. What's this addition? Avram, hailed us Yitzchak. And the order. First, you're saying these are the children of Yitzchak, so tell us they're children. You want to tell us Yitzchok is the son of Avram? son Elu tells Yitzchok, Ben Avram, and then tell us. Why do you know Avram held this Yitzchok? He says, because even Yitzchok's power that comes from the bottom up has to come from the power of Chesed. Mamayi Lamato. And he explains how, for example, in male and female, how it works marriage, that, the, that it comes from the Hamshach, Hamad. It's like the Asus of the Lata that comes from above gives the power for the below to rise up. And then it has the second of r'sheni that it gives and refines it even further. So it's like an example. I'll just give an example. It's not in the Maimur. Tshuva is higher than Tayra. because that's why it can even correct things that someone transgressed Tayra. But how do we know that? Teirah itself reveals that to us. So Chassidus talks about this a lot, that the yesh of this world is all the way straight from Atzmus. It's higher than Eir. But who reveals that? The Eir. So Avram reveals and transmits this power into Yitzchak. That's why Avram hailed this Yitzchak. And that's why even though it's Yitzchak's yira, his awe, that ultimately cancels and and unblocks the plishtim stuffing up the wells, but that too comes with the power of Avram. That's why though Avram initially without Yitzchak has the possibility of Yenikah Sachetzenim, plishtim can emerge from that, that type of emptiness and and laughter and uh, frivolity. Yet when Yitzhak brings Yirah, it's also coming from the strength of Avram, because Avram has the power, therefore, to also eliminate the chitzenim with the power of Yirah. So Avram, with, coupled with Yitzchak's strength, is what gives the power to eliminate the hnikas from the plishtim, as you asked in your question. So it ultimately comes from Avram as well. And basically you need both, like Torah and Shuva to achieve those goals. 3 Let's do the essays quickly. Three essays. First is Letting Go by Hannah Naparstik, age 20, Brooklyn, New York, student based Rivka, DHL. So, life comes with challenges, Hannah writes, and we all try our hardest to rise above the waves, ride above the waves, to ride above the waves. Meanwhile, we struggle as we feel victim of circumstances that envelop us. We work hard with hopes to see a payoff. But is this even possible to achieve? true stability by working to control one's surrounding and self? Or is there perhaps some healthier and more effective way to deal with our humanistic need to be managers over our lives? Continues on with some case studies, and then introduces introduces the chesidus about the knowledge of a higher power, that God is in charge. And when you feel that type of betochen, trust, You're able to let go of your own machinations and your approach and actually, with that humility, be able to overcome life's challenges. And concludes, humans naturally want to feel in control of their lives. It brings a sense of security and power, which we all crave. Yet the quest for control leads to anxiety, especially when things don't work out as well. It takes a leap of faith to realize that we are not in control of our future. It's only God that is in control. This thought is liberating because who... Who do we want to be in control of our lives and taking care of every detail, if not for God, who knows us best? With the knowledge that God is in charge, one can truly relax because he knows that he's safe and in good hands. Okay. Basis is on a several Memoriam. Nice essay. Well done. Thank you. And this and other essays that, that we read each week are posted as we speak at MeaningfulLife.com slash MyLife. You can look at the essay section. You can also receive these essays if you subscribe, free subscription to our weekly emails. The next essay is Tricky Reality. Aviv Aaron, Iloz, age 22, Morristown, New Jersey, student, Teferz Bachurim. The way we usually understand nature is that God runs the world according to the world's patterns, and they are important to him. The result of seeing reality in this way could be emotionally, psychologically, and even physically harming to a person. If nature is the end-all, end be-all, and it tells me that it's impossible to be successful in something, or that I don't deserve something, I have no other path to take but to give up. In the discourse entitled, the Rebbe reveals to us what true reality actually is. God runs nature, and it's not according to the world's patterns. Goes on to explain this, uses it in a very direct way. I enjoyed this essay. I enjoyed the previous essay too, but some stand out sometimes more. Everyone has their taste, so to speak. And talks about how to apply this to life as a solution using these principles. Chamer and Sura, looking at things from the context of Khamer raw matter, and Sura, its refined personality. So, again, another well-done essay. And um, with that, we'll go to the third essay, which is, Are You Missing a Leg? Getting to the Root of Negative Emotions. Sarah Blau, age 29, Brooklyn, New York, extracurricular director at Base Rifka. I believe she was also a winner, top one of the top essays in the previous year's contest. So she writes, Do you ever find yourself on edge, triggered by every small thing and become angry, anxious, or lose your patience? Do you ever feel your negative emotions are getting out of control and that you're looking for a way to deal with them in a healthy manner? So what tools do you have at your disposal to successfully manage the full range of human emotions? And goes on to say, Siddhis sheds light on every aspect of our lives, including the complex world of emotions. And it explains how the concept, just as a three-legged stool cannot stand if one leg is broken, a Jew cannot feel fully at peace if one of the three legs of his stool are broken. We need the three legs. The first leg is a Jew's body, the second a Jew's soul, and the third leg a Jew's mind. Very original, creative. Very, very good essay. I think it's very practical. Thank you for that, with very, very well, well annotated as well. So, with that, we conclude the essays of this week's contest, of this week's, uh, this week's episode, I should say. And I want to wish everyone a very Freilichen and Gu'uladik, redemptive Chag HaGu'ulah, um, the month of Kislev, which will conclude with Chanukah, but will also have in it the Gu'ulas of, of Yud Kislev, Yutes Kislev. And between that will be Yudalat Kislev, the 90th anniversary of the Reb and the Rebetzin's wedding, which we'll speak about next week. So everyone have a very blessed week, an illuminating week. And again, please help support us by going to MeaningfulLife.com slash sponsorship to help us continue the program and expand it. Every week we're here Sunday, 8 to 9 p.m. Everyone be blessed.